Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, it's a winter wonderland outside there today, Wendy. We've got snow, and it we always do. feels so fun getting snow the first few times. It does, except when I realize that I've got 10 miles to run in the snowstorm today. Oh. Yes. So, snow that's shoes? okay. No, I've got the regular <laughs> shoes, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's not too slippery. It's just a little be bit careful. fluffy this morning, but I will be yeah. careful. But that's just a little tragedy. This week, we're seeing two different 50th anniversaries of tragedies oh, co- wow. coming in. Of particular interest to us, one is of the pop culture variety, one is of the paranormal variety. But in Madison, Wisconsin here, where where Wendy and I are, this is the 50th anniversary of the crash of Otis Redding's plane into Lake Monona. About, uh, I don't know, 400 yards from where I'm sitting right now. That's not where the plane went down, but that Lake Monona is about 400 yards from where I'm sitting right now. And, uh, yeah, Otis Redding's plane went down December 10th, 1967. Wow. The singer of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. He also wrote Respect for Aretha Franklin. Wow, talented yeah, man. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Uh, Otis Redding, what, I mean, awesome singer. And uh, I always love that song because, actually, that's one of the ways that I, I bonded with our guitar player, Wendy, is when we were in fifth grade. Uh, we'd walk back from school and he would play the piano and I'd sing Sitting on the Dock of the awesome. his Basement. So I always have uh, nice memories of that song. Cool. But so he passed away in Madison in 1967. And <sighs> actually one of our Patreons, um, one of his friends told me a story one time that he was at the show. There was a place called The Factory, a club called The Factory in downtown Madison, um, not too far from the Capitol, where... Uh, Otis was supposed to show up and they waited and they waited and they waited until somebody came out and said, Otis Redding's plane went down and oh. can't find him. The you know show's off and just very somber, very solemn. And he said that was silent as everybody just walked oh, out the doors. Gosh. Terrible. I can't imagine. Yeah. So that's a sad story, a sad anniversary from very. somebody who's 26 years old. I was thinking about 26. Oh my gosh. Just a you know, child. Right, and to already have written such great songs at 26 years oh. old makes me a, a touch jealous. It's so sad to think about like what could have come out had he lived a longer life. Was his birthday correct? Did he, you know, did he join the 27 club? <laughs> nice. Too, like, that, that so way. close. It's so, and the same era, though, too, the same era, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison and, and Jimi Hendrix, that whole same era. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so Otis Redding did pass away 50 years ago. Uh, yesterday, we're recording this on December 11th, and yesterday was December 10th. But another anniversary coming up this week is December 15th, 1967, and that is the collapse of the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yes. Now, Wendy, you've been to the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Can you give us any any thoughts of your, your visit? I have indeed, and... Yeah, um, the Silver Bridge connects Point Pleasant is in West Virginia, and uh, it's right on the Ohio River. And so the Silver Bridge was the main route to get from Ohio across the river to Point Pleasant. And so you really got a feel for, you know, you can't get to downtown Point Pleasant. The next bridge up to get over the river is pretty far away. So 
that was the main drag and that was the route that everybody took who was coming from Ohio. Uh, right now, the new Silver Bridge, the rebuilt one, is parallel to where the old one had been. So you can see, you know, if you look at a map, you can see the two roads that used mm-hmm. to connect with the bridge and then is just a gap where the bridge was. And uh, went and looked at there. There's a little memorial there. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It's, it's really, it's a very, very small town. Real nice people there. Just, you know, middle America, <laughs> uh, down to earth kind of place. And just to, to imagine the people just driving home from work, you know, like any other day, and then having that bridge collapse, just the tragedy there is incredible. Well, they don't talk about this in the Mothman prophecies, but I wonder if there's any ghost stories associated with the new Silver Bridge after, because already, I mean, so in Minneapolis, there was a bridge collapse about 11 years ago, yeah. and there's already some ghost stories associated huh. with the with the bridge and it wasn't as many so 46 people died in in uh point pleasant and i believe 12 people died oh gosh in many, i mean that i was equally horrifying i yeah. think oh, this was a bridge over the mississippi river uh that collapsed in the middle of rush hour like mm. just a nightmare another another structural nightmare tragedy and maybe it's just in the age of the internet stories spread faster and everything and or the urban legend mill cranks faster than ever, but there was already ghost stories associated with the uh, with the bridge in Minneapolis. Yeah. So I wonder if the Silver Bridge might have some of the same. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder about that. It's such a small town that I think a lot of the people were affected by it because husbands, wives, children of people. Um, in the museum, they had you know a story about a lady who had a uh, cafe downtown and she had lost her husband and child. And just to, oh. to think of the small community, and I'm sure everybody knew somebody at that time that, that died on it. So it's just very sad. Well, the thing about the Mothman is that it kind of gives a tragedy some kind of narrative. In the way, because I think about a museum and the statue and the conf- you know the festival and everything like that for the big Mothman party they have every year. You know, you hate to think, are they just trying to create a tourist destination in a small town out of you know, out of some tragedy, because that's really that that silver bridge collapse really gives it that weight. But at the same time, uh, it it helps people make sense of something horrible that happened. Yeah. You know, the Mothman coming to predict it or warn it or be a harbinger of disaster. Right. Um, I mean, our guest today, Lauren Coleman, has uh, already written a book on the Mothman in uh, 2002, right around the time that the Mothman prophecies came out. Richard Gere that stallion oh yeah it's it's funny um because i so i read the rothman prophecies maybe probably in the early 90s and uh we've discussed this on the show before because we've had discussions about the chicago mothman and everything but in the mothman prophecies it seems like the winged humanoid that people see is just really i mean that's just the tip of the iceberg Mm -hmm. and there's men in black and there's ufos and there's strange you know strange people who show up and phone calls and everything oh yeah it's so i mean before visiting point pleasant i made sure to check out the whole mothman prophecies book (laughs) the audiobook and i was expecting to get lots of stories about the the winged humanoid (laughs) flying around and really it was such a small fraction of what the book is about and so much more of it is the weirdness and the high strangeness and the alien visitors you know um so that part of it really surprised me the mothman himself as a character he's maybe the most exciting part of it but uh well from a character standpoint 
But all the other stuff that went on was just incredible. Well, and, and the thing is, it's, it's a really great book. If you haven't read The Mothman Prophecies, make sure to check it out. And then we're going to talk about Lauren's new book in our interview with the famous cryptozoologist. At least he's famous in my world. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. One he's of the a- great, I mean, he he's probably the preeminent cryptozoologist uh, walking the face of the planet. He's the head of the uh, Cryptozoology Museum in Maine. He's got a nonprofit. And uh, we're super excited to have him on the show. And he's got yeah. a new book about the Mothman Evil Incarnate. And I can't so, wait to read that book. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is that uh, Lauren knew John Keel. He talks about wow. this in an interview. Um, he did press for John Keel when John Keel was not feeling up to it when the movie came out. So Lauren did most of the, um, like the cryptozoological side appearances talking about the original Mothman Prophecies book and whatever when the movie came out in 2002. So he's intimately familiar with it, written a different book on it. And he's come back to, to learn that the curse of the Mothman or the evil or the, the tragedy that the Mothman seems to foretell did not stop with Point Pleasant. Oh, it wow. even continued with the movie. And uh, we even talk about the recent Chicago Mothman sightings, the difference between the new sightings and the Point Pleasant originals. And that's what we get into in the interview with uh, our man, who we <sighs> first met him at the Milwaukee uh, Paranormal Conference uh, in 2016. And it was just a, a sheer delight. So we're bringing in Lauren Coleman to talk with Allison Jornlin as well, my sister from Milwaukee Yay. Ghost Investigations, because she has been going down to Chicago and investigating every single area where the Mothman was sighted. Like she visits the actual Mothman sighting locations in Chicago. Yeah. She's dedicated a ton of time lately into that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's dozens and dozens of places. So she goes and she compares the statements that people send in to what's actually there. So uh, it's great because she'll go down there and she'll be like, okay, here's what they said and here's what we see and tries to give people a visualization of what they would have seen if they would have saw a winged humanoid yeah. in the Chicago area. And that's her YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Mothman is where you can see her, I mean... There's like 80 videos. Yeah. Down there. I mean, she's been it's to an all, impressive she's, collection. She's been to all the places who are listed. And we have an older podcast where we actually talk with the, uh, the people who were getting those reports in of the Chicago Mothman sightings. We'll right. link to that in the show notes. Yep. So uh, anyway, uh, Allison and I talked to Lauren Coleman yesterday about his new book, Mothman Evil Incarnate. And let's go to it. Lauren Coleman is the director of the International Cryptozoology Museum and a Fortean researcher with decades in the field. He joins us here today to talk about his latest book, Mothman, Evil Incarnate, available December 15th. Lauren, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here and to be alive. Yay! (laughs) No, it is is great to be alive. Um, Of course, for us in the North, now Lauren, you're even further North than we are. Right. We're, we're in Wisconsin, yeah. and, and, and the thing is, and I actually wanted to get a little bit, bit of biographical information out of you because I feel like I've been reading your books for decades, and I don't even know where you grew up. So why don't we start with a little, you know, everybody knows you're a Fortean researcher. I would say probably 90% of the people who listen to this podcast have seen your name on a book spine, if not have purchased said book. Um, so I think <laughs> it'd be good. Like, so let's, what's your elevator pitch? Like, you know, where are you from? Well, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, because my father was in the Navy. I was born the same uh, general 10-day period 
when Roswell happened. So oh. it was a it was a very weird week in 1947. But then my family <laughs> moved almost immediately within three weeks to Illinois, and I grew up in central Illinois in Decatur, Illinois, which was oh, Macon sure. County. And uh, you know, didn't really go to Chicago because Chicago in Illinois is really like a different state to all of its downstaters. Uh, then I did my undergraduate work in Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and then uh, traveled all over the country, lived in different places in Illinois, lived in San Francisco for a couple years, investigated Bigfoot out there, made a lot of friends, and then uh, came out to Cambridge, Mass., went to graduate school, worked full-time, did my placement full-time, and went to school full-time. And then, um, let me see, I was into life number two by then, and we moved to Maine and uh, got a cabin in 1980, moved to Maine, in Portland, Maine in 1983. And now my third wife, Jenny, and I live up here. We've lived up here. Well, I've lived up here since 1983. So I really... Actually, since I moved to Massachusetts in 75, I've actually lived in New England as long as I've lived in Illinois now. So uh, so this is what I heard. Just to recap, uh, you were born in 47, but unlike other children who are brought to their parents by a magical stork, you were dropped off by a UFO. Do I have that right? <laughs> actually, I've never said that version of my story, so you totally <laughs> made that up. <laughs> but I noticed whenever you called me that your phone identified where you were in Wisconsin is a very famous city for ghost elephants. Oh, it's on a baraboo? Yes. Yes, actually, so I'm in Madison, and that's a, we're about a half an hour from Baraboo, but my, like my, my Google Voice or Skype number is based there. But yeah, oh. the, um, uh, Baraboo, we just went and did like a haunted ghost hunt there. And uh, for, for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin, was the home of the uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. Right. Uh, for so there's a century. actually stories of, of ghost elephants out in the forest there. Yeah, ghost elephants. <laughs> um, there's a there's a haunted haunted bar that we've done a couple of podcasts from, and there's even uh, Al Ringling has a mansion up there, and our friends just got married and they had their reception at the mansion. And what happened was um, somebody took a, like a live Apple photo, which is like a six second video. And they got a weird figure walking in the background of the stage. Um, and, the, and it's, it's, a, it's a great ghost photo. Like whatever it is, like the person is, was not at the wedding. They, you know, there was nobody recognized them or anything like that. And there's just a, a strange ghost photo from the Al, Al Ringling mansion. And, um, and it looks like Nosferatu. It does. It looks like, oh, okay. which is fun for me. Like Count Orlock is walking in the back of the. That's stage. right. Yeah. So, so well, Lauren, the animal part of it. So. Oh yes. The, That's the elephants always interested me. Well, Lauren, you're a um, you know you've been a cryptozoologist for as long as I've been alive, at least. What turned you into a weirdo in the first place? Well. In the 1958-59, I was reading the books of Charles Fort, so I was already set up. I was reading uh, Roy Chapman Andrews and uh, you know other kind of explorers, Raymond Dittmer, people that would go out into the field 
to be in, interested in uh, whether it was the Gobi Desert or reptiles or whatever. And then Charles Fort really started expanding my world as far as the unknown. But what the real incident that really turned me into a cryptozoologist was in 1960, in March 20th, 1960, I saw a movie called Half Human. That's the American name of of the longer Japanese name, uh, a Japanese movie. It was done by Ashiro Hondu, who's the same guy who did the very famous movie Godzilla. The second film was called uh, The Monster Snowman, or translated into America, turned out as Half Human. And, uh, and I saw this movie. It was about the Yetis. It was in the mountains of Asia. I went to school the next week, and I said to my teachers, what is this about the Yetis? Nobody's, you know, I've been reading all these books, uh, and what is it? And I got three answers from my teachers. Uh, they don't exist. Get back to your studies. Leave me alone. Oh, so, so you didn't have a teacher. Course, you didn't have a teacher like me then. <laughs> no, I did in second grade, but not not in junior high. So, uh, what occurred in sixth grade? I, I did have him a nice teacher, and he helped me quite a bit. But anyway, I I, I did have a lot of friends that were reference librarians in downtown Decatur, and so I went and got the two or three, four books that were available and started devouring everything I could. Additionally, my father was a firefighter, so I knew police officers, I knew firefighters and game wardens. I started going out on many expeditions with them to look into uh, reports of Black Panthers, Little Red Apes, Giant Snake reports in Illinois. So I started doing, you know, excursions, expeditions, whatever you want to call them. There wasn't the internet, so it wasn't, you know, every time anybody goes out for a weekend, it's an expedition. Back then it was just, you know, you went to try to figure out what was going on. Did you have any kind of, like, field guide or anything like that? Because I'm thinking about, uh, you know, did you have the Boy Scout handbook, or was there anything that you used maybe from mainstream society that helped you in your expedition when you're looking for the crazy giant snakes near Decatur, (laughs) Illinois? Well, I think that all of the books that I've been reading about becoming a naturalist, I really thought I was going to grow up and become a naturalist. So I was reading all of these jungle books, all of these Raymond Dittmer's, uh, you know, books in which people were going on expeditions to Africa, to Asia, and it had a lot of kind of how-tos in there uh, involved in their stories. And, you know, like, don't step in the grass if you don't know what's in there and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> but a lot of it was just I'm a good listener and so I asked, asked questions that were pretty open-ended even from the very start I mean I was starting when I was 12 years old, 13 years old and, and I didn't go in there like you see on TV now no that couldn't have been that way or no it had to have a black nose or something like that all of the leading questions that you hear on TV uh, I just went in and said, what did, what happened to you? Uh, what did you see? Uh, or I would usually be uh, connected to someone that was very conservative, in, not in terms of politics, but in terms of the way that they looked at it. 
and they uh, they actually would say things like, uh, you know, I, I think you saw a beaver after they would talk to the person for a while. And I would say, you know, well, how big was it? Uh, what color was it? You know, really a different kind of tack as opposed to really leading with what I, my theory was, which a lot of game wardens do. Uh, they really go into their investigation thinking they know the answer already. Yeah, so they they um, actually are tainting their own an investigation with their own preconceived notions. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, when you think about that kid, you know, in 1960, uh, you know, running around central Illinois and looking, you know, looking for giant snakes, and the way you were investigating back then, it's funny, we're ta- you know, talking about it, you knew the difference between leading the witness, uh, in, you know, when you were 13 years old, and, and there's a lot of people today who don't understand that difference. But what would you say has changed in your investigation? I know of course, it just the years and decades are going to change. But when you think about yourself as a uh, you know a young investigator going out there, and now you've just released a new book and you're still conducting interviews and talking to people who've seen things, um, do you think anything has changed in your style in particular, or any of your views of interrogating? I guess interrogating makes it sound like you're going to torture them. <laughs> and Lauren, you don't you don't torture witnesses, right? <laughs> No, no, I don't. Uh, okay. I'm very okay, peaceful. But, well, let me tell you, and I just gave you a hint about re- regarding Wisconsin. Whenever I carry around inside of me uh, an encyclopedia of knowledge now, so if I have a visitor come to the museum or I begin talking to somebody and find out where they're from, I might ask a lot of open-ended questions, but I also, because I have all of this sort of mental trivia about different cities and different dates and different locations, I often would say, well, you know, I know you're from this part of Indiana and there are Giants uh, Turtles reports from there. Do you know anything about that? So I might lead with past information that I already have. And that, that started pretty early, you know, by the time I was five years into cryptozoology, I had already, I mean, what I did when I went to college is I hardly ever went to class. I would go hitchhike around the country. I'd go out uh, all over Southern Illinois and Indiana and Missouri, Kentucky, investigating cases, because who needs school if you can do that, right? Um, (laughs) That's right. And so I started noticing, and I used to clip articles like mad back in the day when we all used to actually get newspapers and clip them out. There wasn't Xerox machines, believe it or not. There there wasn't, you know, the internet and there wasn't emails. It was all about physical newspapers and letters. I used to have um, 400 correspondence and every time I went to my mailbox, it was like Christmas because I might get 40 letters in a day with clippings in them from people that I was trading clippings as Fordians around the country. Uh, And that's, so that kind of database in my brain started leading me to go to certain places that I knew, you know, kind of like what ghost hunters do. I, I did that with cryptozoology or with reports of strange animals. And so my investigative style evolved from, uh, 
just being open-minded to also being open-minded, but also homing in on target areas or target locations and even knowing what years were more active. And so I might go to a location, go to a newspaper office and say, do you have a, a file from 1944 uh, in Lebanon, Pennsylvania? Because I know there was a lot of uh, mystery cats around and I'm trying to dig into see if they were more uh, reports. So that's kind of what started happening for me. So what I love there is the inferences that you were like, and that's the idea that you have such a, a database, you start associating things right away uh, with other stuff it could be related to. And that's why we need to upload your brain before. So we need to call Raymond Kurtzweil <laughs> and get the singularity going today because we need those associations in the future of cryptozoology. Allison, you had a question. Yeah, and um, as uh, I think most of the listenership knows, um, I'm a fourth grade teacher, and so lots and lots of kids are are really into cryptozoology and and just you know looking into the mysteries of life, really. And so I, you know, as an elder in this field, Lauren, uh, you know, what can you suggest for kids like you? I mean, that are looking forward to a future of investigations i mean what what can you what can you suggest to them now uh, as a future path well uh it's interesting i just uh went up to northern maine and gave uh, uh, lectures to 300 kids that were all gifted kids from several communities they had a, a big gifted uh you know male and female kids came over and I, I talked about being inspired, not being, uh, you know, a lot of kids who are gifted or different, or, I mean, I'm not afraid to say nerdy, uh, you know, <laughs> when they're growing up are, are kind of the ones that may be targets for bullies. They may be targets for teachers that, uh, aren't as good as you and really are unaccepting. Uh, a lot of the education system is really to try to get kids to go between two black lines. And mm. so these kids that I was talking to up there and a lot of the children and youth that I do talk to, it's about uh, really following their passion, following their uh, patience and not giving up. A lot of people like, for instance, my book, Cryptozoology, a to Z, and it, it actually got the the youth uh, the youth librarians award in, from the ALA in 2001 because a lot of resistant readers love the book because there's 200 entries. So you know, just taking small bits of information and having 200 entries in a the book, then looking which one interests you. You know, if it's uh, if it's giant dinosaurs in the Congo, then read more about that. Uh, you know, just because somebody says cryptozoology and points you in the direction of Bigfoot, that doesn't mean that's the one that's going to get your passion. So I, I do a lot of pointing people to really explore what interests them uh, and also to really understand that you can do things in your own backyard. You don't have to go to Loch Ness to study the Loch Ness Monster. There's river monsters, there's lake monsters, there's sea serpents, for instance, if you're interested in those kinds of beasties. 
There's near, ghost elephants near, and baraboo. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I'm not I'm not real interested in ghost stories, but I know there are some kids that are doing a real uh, association between ghosts and, and creatures. So that's, I'd say, you know, if you're in Wisconsin, look into the ghost elephants, because that's a kind of a, a combo zoo form that may actually attract your attention. And and wasn't um and I'm talking to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So uh, wasn't the Minnesota Iceman actually discovered here at State Fair Park? I I think I I remember reading about that. Absolutely, we don't know exactly where it was from. It probably was from Asia and all of the Vietnam connections there. But the first time that it was seen in a uh, a stockyard State Park. Uh, I mean, state uh, fair was in Milwaukee, and then it it was called the Minnesota Iceman because the owner was well, the guy that was showing it. We don't know who the owner was. Was from Rolling Stone, uh, Rolling Meadow, uh, Minnesota, but it'll always have that connection to Milwaukee that makes it very endearing to Wisconsin. Wait, hold on. For, let's get a quick background on the Minnesota Iceman here, because I'm not even familiar with it. And I, I lived in Minnesota for a couple of years, and I can tell you it's everybody's a Minnesota Iceman when it hits <laughs> December. <laughs> well, uh, last year I did a, a huge afterword to uh, Bernard Hoivelman's book on the Minnesota Iceman. And what occurred was in 19, oh, probably 66, 67, uh, a showman who used to show antique tractors was approached by a mystery millionaire who had brought into the country, probably illegally, a um, a frozen body of a Homo erectus or a Neanderthal man and began showing it around. Supposedly, he was someone that was a a Christian who wanted to test whether or not people would accept the possibility that there were creatures like humans, but very quote-unquote primitive, that were living at the same time as us. So uh. he wanted to show it around. He didn't really want to give it to scientists. And uh, so what occurred was Ivan was uh, being visited by Bernard Hoevelmans from France in uh, New Jersey, and they decided they heard about this from a individual who uh, lived in Milwaukee, who had seen it, tried to get his anthropology professor interested, and his anthropology professor just, uh, you know, diminished the idea and poo-pooed it and everything. So Sanderson was called, he got in his car with Hoevelmans, and they came out, and they found where the uh, exhibitor was in Minnesota, and they went and spent three days photographing it and looking at it in a uh, refrigerated car. Uh, on a farm there. And then uh, even though they promised each other, they wouldn't publish anything about it. Well, both of them broke their word and <laughs> published as good as they could, you know, with the Frenchman, uh, Bernard Hoevelmans, who was a Belgian, but anyway, he published first and then Sanderson got very upset and went ahead and published it. Unfortunately, even though he published it in a scientific journal in Italy, uh, he, uh, he first published it in the Argosy, which kind of diminished it to a lot of scientists over here. Well, hmm. as you say, Lauren, information belongs to everyone, right? 
Absolutely. So this it is kind of a to the world. Yeah, that's right. This is kind of a natural transition then in talking about the Minnesota Iceman, nineteen sixty six to uh, or nineteen sixty seven. You know, I couldn't help recognizing that those those years also have other significance, right? <laughs> Pertaining to your latest Absolutely. book. Right. Well, my latest book, which is kind of a uh, Chapter two of the Mothman story that I wrote about in 2002. Mothman was first seen and uh, given the name in 1966. In uh, November of 1966, there was lots of reports of this large winged creature in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And then for 13 months, people saw it. Over 200 witnesses in the Point Pleasant area. And a lot of people got this sort of, they would have nightmares about something awful was going to happen. And then 13 months later, exactly 13 months to the day uh, when President uh, Johnson, LBJ, turned on the Christmas lights in Washington, D.C., the bridge in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which was called the Silver Bridge, collapsed. And it collapsed with all these cars on it, and 46 people died in the river. And so that really was, it had bookends to it. You know, you had a start and you had a finish to a lot of those sightings. So a lot of people uh, made the mistake at the time saying, you know, well, the Mothman wasn't seen after that. It was. But anyway, in 2002, the movie was made with Richard Gere. Uh, and Laura Lenny and uh, Deborah Messing and became a very famous movie, not exactly, you know, a Jaws or a blockbuster, but it made uh, enough of an impression. It actually brought the story into a whole new generation because Keel's book actually came out in 75. So between 75 and 2002, nobody talked too much about Mothman. But since 2002, uh, Point Pleasant really has embraced the Mothman. They have a annual festival there. Uh, one of their local um, artists made a statue that's now a couple years after the movie was placed in the downtown square and uh, is is really the focal point for a lot of people, of course, having their picture taken in front of it. But what I started noticing, and this is where the, my second book comes in, Soon after the movie came out, I started really getting um, intrigued by what I called the Mothman Death Curse. Everybody talks about death curses with movies, you know, uh, two to five people uh, were died because of the Poltergeist movie or the Exorcist or other movies that always have these supposed curses. Well, what I noticed is a lot of people associated with associated with the Mothman movie were dying. They were, uh, uh, for instance, uh, Mark Pellington, who was really, really well known for his MTV rock videos. He had done a movie called Arlington Road about conspiracy theory before he did Mothman. That's a good uh, one, too. Arlington Road, the, uh, Jeff Bridges and oh, who was married? Susan Sarandon's boyfriend. Tim, Tim Robbins? Oh, Tom. Yeah, Tim, Tim Robbins. Ro- yeah, yeah, that was yeah. that was a great one. Yeah, he was the bad guy. Uh, very spooky, too. <laughs> Spoiler um, alert. 
Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Mark Pellington, uh, his wife got this mysterious illness after the movie came out. Movie came out in January. She died by the summer after the movie, um, probably a four week uh, illness, and died mysteriously at 42 wow, years that's old. Terrible. Uh, the, the executive producer died, the music director of the movie died. Uh, other people associated with the movie or associated with Mothman or what really became a focus was a lot of brothers and relatives, um, brothers, sisters, you know, all kinds of relatives of people that were associated as primary eyewitnesses of uh, Mothman started dying, especially around the time the movie was released. So for years and years, I tried to write the book, you know, about the death curse, about the different things with the movies and and uh, different things would get in my way. And I've actually been writing this book that's coming out now for about seven years. Um, and so uh, the death curse in them a few years ago was only 80 people. But uh, by the time this book has coming out, there's the death list is up to 100 people that are associated with Mothman dying. Uh, but there's all kinds of little things, uh, annotations of, of Keel's work, uh, looking at Keel's life, looking at different weird things about the movie. And I actually lead this new book with uh, the Chicago Mothman sightings because it's kind of interesting. It's happening right now. Right, because coming up, we have the 50th anniversary then of the Silver Bridge collapse on December 15th. Absolutely. Yep. It will be the 50th. And, and, uh, I did do a blog the other day called it, uh, look Mothman math. And there's a real association with Mothman and the number 13. Um, so, you know, 13, 13, 13 months after the first sighting was the collapse of the bridge. The, um, the actual cause of the collapse of the fir- of the bridge was I-Bar 13. Um, Mary Heyer, who was a reporter, she died um, 13 months times two after, uh, after the collapse of the bridge at the very young age in her 50s. And so there's a lot of association with the number 13. And so a lot of people have asked me, well, if we take the first sighting of the Chicago Mothman as April 6th, because I, I never, I never, uh, like if you look at the original Mothman, the first sighting that got publicity was November 15th. There were other sightings that happened in that area, but like a lot of those, it's only after the first publicity, uh, then people come forward and said, Oh, I saw it, you know, back in September. Well, it doesn't matter because you, you're not the one that said it was the first one. So, so that I do the same thing looking at the Chicago one. If the, the first one that got the most publicity was April 6th, even if there were ones, you know, in 2011 or, or the month before, a lot of people are wondering if in May, 2018, May 6th, 2018, will there be a disaster? Will there be something that's going to happen there? Uh, you know, uh-huh. it's not the day that I'd want to 
go uh, visit the Sears Tower or the Willis. I was about to make that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you missed it, Mike. that's okay. The guest, the guest, the guest takes joke preference every time. Okay, here's the thing though. Now you had met John Keel and stuff like that before, right? Oh yeah, several times. Yeah. Okay, and so yeah, I, did you guys? Sony Sony Screen Gems came to me to do all the publicity on the film because what happened the year that they were filming the Mothman, John got a cataract operation and they left staples in his eyes, so he technically was blind. So he he begged off doing any of the publicity. I did 400 radio interviews in the month that the movie came out for John. So Oh, wow. Anyway. Did people associate the Silver Bridge collapse before John's book or did he help with his investigation and stuff create the 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 narrative? Well, what happened is the people down there like Mary, who was a reporter, she's the one that had the dreams of um, Christmas packages floating in the river. So there was this real foreboding that was going on with the Mothman reports because there was Mothman reports in the fall, UFO reports in the spring. They, They felt something was happening. And then John would go back to New York and he was talking to his psychic friends and they were saying things like the Pope's going to be assassinated or, uh, you know, there's some disaster that's going to happen. So the movie tries to capture some of that. They don't do such a good job. They actually talk about it more all happening in West Virginia, but it happened in New York. It happened to John. It happened to, you know, through his psychic friends. And so John then wrote the book. Uh, he wrote, uh, in his book, um, Strange Creatures from Time and Space in 1970, he wrote about the Mothman, but then in 75, he wrote the book, A Mothman Prophecies. And then it really firmly for people associated a prophecy, a banshee-like behavior uh, and association with Mothman. But the people there in 1966 and 67 certainly knew it and they felt that. Uh, John just putting it all in print um, made it known to a wider audience. Now, um, has the the Mothman been reported in other places and times? Very definitely. And uh, in my book, Mothman and Other Curious Encounters in 2002, uh, I actually looked into uh, a friend of mine, the late Mark A. Hall, he did a lot of newspaper digging in that area and found that uh, Native American people actually called these things the flying heads or the flying uh, bodies and, you know, with different Native names. And then in the 1920s, uh, there were jalopies that were chased by these giant owls and these giant birds in that same area. So first of all, we've got to start with West Virginia there definitely was Mothman reports there long before the 60s, but also uh, Mothman-like creatures in, uh, you know, certainly the Owlman in uh, England was reported, but Sacramento, uh, Mark Travinsky did reports of the Potomac Mothman uh, in the 40s in Maryland. So there was Mothman-like creatures seen all over the country 
It's just that uh, because a newspaper headline writer called big birds, which they were big birds, really, not Mothman at all. He called them Mothman because he was a fan of the Batman series on TV. Uh, and that's how they got that name. And because when anything gets a different kind of name, it tends to make it more uh, marketable or publicity oriented or whatever. That's why bat, uh, the, the bat squatch. Have you heard about that? Oh yeah. That was a, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the sightings people... uh, was in uh, 2006 in lacrosse of a bat squatch. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, like the Dover demon or Bigfoot or Sasquatch, they, they start out as a little regional case and then they kind of grow and uh are all over have you noticed certain clusters of mothman sightings i mean 66 to 67 obviously 2017 uh seems to be another cluster but was there clusters around the movie coming out where people like i saw a flying humanoid and it looked like richard Gere flying over my house (laughs) i think that was a dream the american (laughs) gigolo has wings Uh, no no, a lot of people, I think, oftentimes predict that, like whenever Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, they thought there was going to be a huge wave of UFO sightings that didn't happen. Uh, when Mothman came out, there wasn't a huge wave of Mothman sightings. It really almost has to really happen uh, in a different sort of way. Uh, there was, I mean, there have been, like, there used to be a real association with some town might have a drive-in movie and there was uh, the legend of Boggy Creek would come to town. There might be two or three new Bigfoot reports, but that seems to uh, be the the reflective factor when people are actually seeing these things all the time. And then the ridicule curtain kind of comes down and they can talk to their local newspaper person about the reports that happens to all of us every October more people, right, you know, the news people, the media pays attention to uh, cryptid reports and strange creature reports around Halloween more than any time at the of the year. That doesn't mean that they're seen more often than it's just that people aren't afraid to write about them. Oh, okay. So how did you first start thinking about the Mothman? Because this is the first time I've ever heard about the death curse. And is this kind of why you're calling it Mothman Evil Incarnate? Yeah, I think that uh, looking at the whole evolution of of Mothman, when Keel started getting his reports in, because he was he actually went to that area because he was a newspaper stringer, and he was doing a story about domestic cats that were growing wings. You've probably okay. seen some of those reports. Uh, you know, I haven't, but that five. sounds adorable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. there's little cats, regular normal cats grow wings and, you know, they don't fly or anything. They're real little, but they, they kind of are genetic weirdness that shows up. Well, Keel started picking up on one that was in the Point Pleasant area. So he said, well, I'm going down there. I know there's UFOs being seen up and down the Ohio River. So I'll start reporting on this and I'll write some stories. Well, he got there and he found out that people were seeing this Mothman creature and started uh, really uh, 
getting some of the reports. Well, the early reports were of the Big Bird. Uh, the people would go to the newspaper and they'd say, we saw Big Bird. A Big Bird was in the TNT area. A Big Bird was six feet tall and walking towards our car. A Big Bird was flying over our cars. And so Keel started writing Ivan Sanderson in New York and New Jersey where he, he had an apartment and a, a house. And he said, you know, Ivan, can you help me with these reports? It seems like it's some kind of cryptozoological thing I don't know about. And so Sanderson said, yeah, you know, there's been reports of big birds, sometimes thunderbirds, sometimes giant condors. You know, maybe he would even say it was could have been a, a giant owl because there were giant owls uh, four feet tall in the fossil record in Cuba. And then all of a sudden, well, the a, a giant Cuban owl. It. Yeah, a giant Cuban owl. And then the newspaper person put the, the name on it, Mossman, and it just changed the whole story. So then you had the Silver Bridge collapse. Then you had people dying and having bad luck. And Keel was supposed to do a, mo a documentary with NBC. The guy died, who was the, the guy putting together the NBC white paper. So those kinds of things started happening. And so what I started doing and noticing was that it went from a biological, zoological, cryptozoological mystery to one that became psychological, sociological, and folkloric. Uh, when I went down and re-interviewed people in 2001 and 2002, they talked about how Keel would come to their house, he would talk to them, and by the time they were through talking to Keel, they put um, crucifixes on all their walls because they thought their house was being invaded by demons. Keel Keel was not a ufologist, and he, by the time at the end of his career, he wasn't even a cryptozoologist. He was a demonologist. And so this whole Mothman phenomena really became something that was more physically based and really changed into evil, changed into a death list, changed into bad luck. Even when I did all of those interviews in 2002, uh, you know, I, I could be on uh, Art Bell at night. I'd go upstairs to my bathroom and the light bulb over my head would explode. I mean, I was just surrounded by, you know, lots of technical problems and lots of bad luck. And I had to be careful all the time because it wasn't so much that I, I am superstitious or I thought Mothman was going to get me. I just knew that a lot of people had bad luck around the Mothman phenomena, and I wasn't going to let it get me. Uh, but it certainly uh, got a lot of people. Well, that's what I was wondering about, because I was like, you start the book, and you're like, okay, I'm going to call this Mothman Evil Incarnate, and everybody surrounding Mothman has died, and so I'm going to write a book about the Mothman. Wait! Oops! Delete, delete. Like, when, when did you get to the point where you're like, how do I... Um, you know, so you're like, I'm, I'm just not going to let the Mothman get me. But did you ever get to a point where you're thinking, you know, I'm talking to people and I, I don't know how to mess with this. I mean, how do you protect yourself against one of the greatest of unknowns? Maybe it's because I'm a vegan. Uh, no. I'm <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. We're impervious. You're, you're creating evil. all that good karma. <laughs> well, I try to. You know, I really do. And I don't talk about it in the book, but... Uh, 
I have a younger brother that died during the making of the book, through the writing of the book. My mother died, you know, during all of this. I've been surrounded by bad luck, by divorces, by, you know, I, I fell and, and broke my back. I've had been in and out of the hospital. You know, I let all of that happen without it stopping me. I feel very motivated to not let bad luck get in the way of me finishing projects. And so uh, for a lot of people, it does. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, you know, bad luck, tragedies, get them off track. For me, it's just kind of normal. Uh, we all have those kinds of things. Also, I mean, I was hired by the state of Maine I, uh, for nine years. I was their consultant about teen suicide. So I'm very aware of how depressed and suicidal people can get in this field. And I feel uh, I have a lot of protective factors all the time surrounding me, full of love, full of animals, full of, you know, all of that stuff to really keep myself really um, clear. Yeah, clear and grounded. And um, I'm really glad to hear that, Lauren. Um, I I have a question for you about, you know, so, so some people think that, you know, Mothman brings the evil, but others think that maybe Mothman is just a warning or sometimes even a protector. What, what do you, what's your take on that? I'm not sure, and I, I am a little upset with the Mothman Prophecies book and movie because it's created a mythos that is much more exaggerated than there is this whole harbinger of evil, uh, harbinger of death, um, almost as if Mothman is some kind of marker. Uh, in the movie, they talked about Mothman being seen before Chernobyl, Mothman being seen before hurricanes, that was all totally made up. Right. And John Keel and I did as much as we could to talk uh, in our interviews. And of course, I did more than him, that this was all moving myth and that we can't get distracted. So what I've seen is more there's um, a real association in time and place when Mothman and some of the evil and some of the deaths certainly happen, uh, I'm not actually stupid enough to say there's a cause and effect. I yeah. mostly say I don't know. Yeah, you don't have you don't have a lot of Bigfoot reports connected to a lot of dead people. You don't have a lot of even Thunderbird reports associated with death like you do with Mothman. There's something different that's going on with the whole Mothman process. Uh, well, I, you don't have snake reports and, and death, you know. You have Mothman and death. Right. Well, I wanted to ask about um, a, a case that I uh, just learned about recently, um, and I haven't looked that far into it, but I thought you might be familiar with it. It's from 1978, I believe, called the the Freiburg uh, Shrieker, and... Um, I, I wondered if you, you had heard about that case where, you know, this Mothman-like creature uh, actually prevented miners uh, from entering a mine uh, 
who they were on their way to work and you know this this very foreboding creature is you know blocking their entrance to the mine and shrieking have you heard about that case at all no i haven't freiburg what state Pennsylvania. Uh, oh, the the Freiburg Shrieker from 1978, uh, and so all right. What, so these miners, they're what state? Uh, that was in Freiburg, Germany. Oh, oh, okay. No, I have. Yeah, so it's it's one of the foreign reports, but I I you know why I'm picking it out right now is uh, because these miners were on their way to work. And, you know, they're about to enter the mine when they see, uh, you know, this dark, uh, you know, like seven foot tall uh, winged creature in front of the mine shrieking at them. Uh, And they said like the shrieking sounded like a train breaks, I think. Uh, Uh And so they were very frightened by this and of course you know like stayed in the distance you know they were like we gotta clock in but oh no there's a monster what do we do so right. they're just like loitering outside the mine t- trying to do whatever like cleanup work they can until it departs and then um about it it effectively prevented them from going in and uh an hour later, the mine collapsed, and because uh, it impeded their their entrance, they were saved. That's great. Good story. Yeah. Well, and- it's interesting. The, the moss, Mothman in West Virginia is reported to sound like a giant mouse. Oh. Hmm. Squeaking like squeaking. a giant mouse. Yeah. yeah. That's- so uh, it's the Point Pleasant squeaker instead of the Freiburg <laughs> shrieker. You know, <laughs> you know what? what interests me, and maybe you know about this because I know you have investigated the Chicago Mothman. For for one thing, I've got trouble with all of the reports. I, I don't think all of them are classic Mothman reports. But let's take, if you've got over 50 reports, I haven't heard about anybody dying. Uh, I mean, there is the one person that says, my mother died two weeks ago or something after the sighting. Right. Uh, but I haven't heard But one of my problems with a lot of the Mothman reports from Chicago is one, it's an extremely urban area. And yeah. so uh, we, and then they're really a combination of kites and balloons and owls and birds. And, and some people Mothman everywhere. People. <laughs> right, right. At all times. Well, I was just talking to somebody in the media the other day, and they asked me, well, how would I investigate it if I had all the money in the world? Uh, And it's something that kind of came to me as I was talking to the individual who was a documentary filmmaker. And I said, if I had all the money in the world and all the resources and could go into Chicago and do this right, I would go to all of the law enforcement people and say, okay, at this date, at this corner, this thing was seen. Can I see all of the uh, cams, all of the cameras, closed-circuit TV cameras, Yeah. Um, you know, ATMs and banks and stuff, and can I get photographs of what was happening then? Is there photographic evidence of these creatures? Because if people are seeing them so much, 50 times, there should be, in an urban area, photographs of them. I have not. There was even one report, wasn't there, of a group of 
people and there was cameras going off and cell phones. None of those photographs have been produced, right? Yeah, none of them have ever surfaced. Uh, the one uh, that did uh, surface um, was uh, actually um, from uh, Melrose Park on July 29th. Uh, Melrose Park, uh, again, a very populated area. It's actually a strip mall Uh and uh, the witness reportedly came out of the Best Buy and saw a huge Mothman-type uh, creature swoop down in front of her and then fly off and was able, she said, to um, dig in her purse, which seems like an impossibility to me, <laughs> and um, find, right, find the cell right. phone quick enough to um, snap off a few photos. And... Um, so, well, actually, one photo that contained what, what she said was the Mothman... Uh, but unfortunately, when, when I went to investigate that area and was able to retake the picture by the long, uh, really laborious process of going throughout the parking lot and trying to match up lawn, landmarks, when I was able to do that, I saw that the place in the parking lot where that, the photo was actually taken, which much, much farther out than she described. And uh, sadly, I also found that there, uh, it, this place is uh, this strip mall is right in uh, the path of O'Hare, and again in a very very busy area. I spent a long time in the parking lot and almost got hit by cars numerous times. <laughs> They're like, "What is she doing loitering yeah. out here?" Um, but anyway, clearly, unfortunately, um, I believe that uh, photo was a photo of a plane because uh, of the seeing the environment and seeing all the planes flying overhead and, and even taking my own photos uh, and comparing them to the purported Mothman photo. It's really the unmistakable shape of a plane. Good work. Good work. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, I've not, I've been kind of underwhelmed by the lack of photographic evidence with, uh, yeah. you know, all of the reports and all of the descriptions and how, but, you know, we know from, Almost all of cryptozoology, if somebody is scared, if it's semi-dark, uh, they will. people will usually exaggerate size by about one-third. So, uh, I, I often exaggerate size by about one-third in the dark. <laughs> oh, Mike. <laughs> Keep it clean, buddy. Hey. <laughs> and the distances. We can't tell how far things are away like you found out. Right. You know, Lauren, one thing I'm interested in when I'm thinking about, I'm comparing Chicago, comparing Point Pleasant and some of these other sightings. When I think about the Mothman, I, you know, I, I'm wondering, because I was thinking about him like the Silver Surfer in the comics. And, and the Silver Surfer is the herald of Galactus, and Galactus is a planet eater. Um, but the Silver Surfer himself is not sp particularly evil. He's just the herald right. that has to show up and say, Galactus is coming to eat your planet, so make your peace uh, because your planet <laughs> Sorry. is eaten. <laughs> so when I think about the Mothman and I'm thinking about people seeing this creature and people seeing something that most of us would consider unnatural, a, a human with wings and, and glowing red eyes or a, like a were-owl kind of thing, um, and that's what I was wondering, like, in, in addition to the Freiburg Shrieker, are there any of the stories where the Mothman shows up and it's not necessarily evil happens, but something good happens? Like, somebody has a Mothman sighting and the next day uh, they win the lottery, which, which may not be lucky because most people that win the lottery end up sad and penniless anyway. But um, 
something good happens well, I think, after you see I think the Mothman. Using you, using you as a test tube case, let's really back up from this and see what absolutely happens. People put their own projections on a creature that's outside of them. It may be evil, it may be good, but you know, if we take the position, we really don't know, and we just look at the data, over and over again, we can find good and evil in all of this. It just so happens that with, with regard to Point Pleasant, almost all of the stories are evil. Almost all of the stories are tragedies. You have people that put themselves in mental hospitals, Linda Scarberry, uh, you know, you have Marcella Bennett who lost her kids to death, to suicide. Uh, so there's lots of stuff that's going on in Point Pleasant that seems to be very negative. You don't hear the lottery stories or you know, somebody died and they got an inheritance and a new car. You don't hear those about Point Pleasant. I haven't heard, other than a few eyewitnesses in Chicago saying they felt terror or they felt foreboding, I haven't heard good or evil stories out of Chicago. That's why I'm waiting for May 8th, 2018. You know, is there going to be a building collapse there? Is there going to be a plane crash at O'Hara, you know, hopefully I won't be flying into there, but you know, if, if we don't know what's going to happen in the future and we haven't an association yet with the Mothman in Chicago being evil or good, but because we already have the Mothman template from Point Pleasant, most people are expecting evil. Well, and and uh, speaking of templates, you know, uh, the other thing that distinguishes the Chicago sightings, well, there's multiple things that distinguish the Chicago sightings um, from the Point Pleasant sightings, um, you know, one being that uh, in, the, in Point Pleasant, I mean, so many witnesses actually came forward publicly, um, whereas in this case, uh, we have we have one that I know of. There might be a couple of more uh, a couple more that that. Uh, that uh, documentary producer you're talking about has unearthed, but um, really, uh, you know, a lot of people came forward and were willing to share their story publicly in Point Pleasant. That hasn't been the case in Chicago. Uh, the other thing is that um, in in Point Pleasant, there were many other phenomena going on concurrently, like, uh, you know, UFO sightings and uh, men in black sightings. So, so there are a lot of differences, I think. Right. It's kind of, I mean, it's an extreme example, but when I was a kid, we all used to play outside. We all might walk to the store. Today, kids are afraid they're going to be abducted. They don't walk to stores. And it's the same sort of situation with eyewitnesses. Myself, Keel, and all of us in the 60s and 70s, we never took a report from an eyewitness where we did, weren't able to use the witness's name. So people would come forward, they'd tell our, their names, they'd be, their names would be in the newspaper. If you look at, uh, you know, even up close on Chicago, it's, it's just phenomenal to me. There's so many anonymous, you know, witnesses. 
It's just making those reports even less worthwhile uh, because, uh, you know, they they say they want to, uh, you know, become lightning rods and talk about it because they know somebody else is doing it. But it doesn't become a lightning rod if it's just Joe Blow down the street. Uh, you know, we need people to really step up and say, you know, I saw this. I'm not afraid to talk about it. It happened here. I had this person with me and I told them and you can talk to them. And in many ways, it's very similar to something else that's going on in our society. I don't want to even get into, but, uh, you know, real eyewitness accounts where there's names associated and there's other people's names associated will really bring the Mossman reports for Chicago around to a, a much higher standing and credible standing. Yeah, I, I concur. And I, I would really welcome any witnesses to come forward because, you know, this this is the kind of thing that we need. If something authentic is happening, we need we need to hear from you. And I wanted to share one more um, take on this. So, you know, you're talking about like these evil experiences with the Mothman. And uh, I, I teach I actually teach at a, a native school. So, um, you know, I'm non-native, but uh, I get to... Uh, be a participant, an active participant in uh, many of the the uh, native cultures of the Wisconsin area, and so I need to talk about the Thunderbird and how the Thunderbird is viewed, uh, because you know sure. we had talked a little bit earlier about you know maybe Thunderbird uh, is is the same or at least akin to the Mothman, and so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my own feeling about it is, you know, uh, from my experiences um, with the, the different Native cultures here in Wisconsin, and that the view of the Thunderbird is as a protective creature, but it protects uh, people from the evil coming down from below. And so uh, one of the ideas of, of this evil is, is something called a, a water panther. So it's interesting that the, you know, the, the silver bridge was over water, of course. And, you know, there's an idea that there's this creature which, which has been, you know, labeled the water panther or, or, or some kind of serpent, uh, some kind of water serpent uh, that is an evil force that comes out and, and then the Thunderbird is there to try to protect the people, to try to launch a counterattack. Um, and so that may explain, you know, why the, the Mothman is around. You know, maybe uh, it's a Thunderbird and it's trying to do its job of protection. That's a, another a cultural take on it, which, which maybe, uh, you know, most people, you know, don't have access to. But when I know, like, um, every spring uh, at our school, we have what's called a, a spirit pull ceremony where we put out a, a special uh, pole um, in in the the center of our of our uh, grounds and uh, you know there, there's different offerings associated with it but uh, the, the prayer is to the thunder beings and we do it in spring because that's when all the inclement weather starts coming in in terms of thunderstorms and tornadoes and you know the idea is this is an appeal to the thunderers to protect us uh, but then I also know um, in um, in Oneida 
uh, culture, which is uh, part of the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy, otherwise known as the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, when they see a rainbow, for instance, uh, they believe that that is a signal from the creator to the Thunderbird that that there is something evil is a muck, and and then so the that is the calling to the Thunderbird to come out and and protect the people. So it's a very different idea of this very, you know, fearsome creature. It is a, you know, these thunderers are fearsome creatures, but the idea is that they're ultimately there to protect us uh, from the evil coming down from below in the earth. Right, right. And um, I, I think that a lot of people that aren't native um, and don't understand or don't work with native people also tend to make the mistake of hearing about one culture, you know, Ojibwa or something that's further north that may be protectors. But I'm, for instance, I'm part Cherokee, and among the Cherokee, they can be very uh, intense in terms of the Thunderbird legends are about Thunderbirds coming and plucking little kids away and can be a danger. So uh, there's 470-some tribal groups, or, right. uh, First Nations, and they can all have different takes, just like I was saying to your brother. If your brother immediately thinks about the soul surfer as his association with, you know, Mothman and Thunderbirds, well, among different Native peoples, some, some are, you know, forgiving but others can be very dangerous. So I think we have to be careful. It's just almost uh, really uh, a Rorschach test about what culture or what people might think about these creatures. Right. Well, and I wanted to get to at least um, kind of my final question here, Lauren. And this is not necessarily about the Mothman, but probably, you know, we're talking to a cryptozoologist you probably have more cases memorized than any other cryptozoologist on the planet right now. So this is something that's I'll come up in our... <laughs> right, they're all gone, so that's why we have you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that that's comes up a lot in our discussions and something that I had never entertained before we were talking about on the podcast is that the idea, a lot of times when people see these cryptozoologists cryptozoological creatures, um, I had always thought of them as just physical, real creatures that we just haven't discovered yet in, in, you know, in all these situations. If it's a Loch Ness monster, there's just an animal in Loch Ness that we hadn't, haven't discovered yet and haven't you know, quantified yet. If there's a Bigfoot, um, then it's just a, a big hominid running around the Northwest that we haven't, or even Wisconsin, they seem Bigfoot too, but, but that we haven't just been able to catalog yet but when i think about and hear so many stories of people seeing bigfoot then seeing ufos then seeing the mothman you know all these stories of high strangeness and all accompanied by um the smell of sulfur in these different situations too from from fairies to bigfoot to ufos people have that smell um then it seems like people are encountering something otherworldly, maybe not otherworldly, but just something out of our comprehension, and we're putting the shape to it. We're putting it as a UFO, we're putting it as the Mothman, we're putting it as Bigfoot. And I was just wondering if any specific cases, or uh, maybe a group of cases in your research, has seemed like 
people were seeing something, maybe different things, but it was their interpretation of it that caused their report. Like maybe they were all seeing the same thing in reality, but in their heads they were seeing something different. I don't know if I was getting that across clearly. Well, you know, this is going backwards for me. Um, The first book that I wrote in 1975, The Unidentified Notes Towards Solving the UFO Mystery, and my second book, Creatures of the Outer Edge, were both written by Jerry Clark and myself. And Jerome Clark went on to become uh, very well-known in the UFO field. I went on to become very well-known in cryptozoology. But what we were doing as young researchers writing both of those books was looking at a wide variety, fairy lore, uh, 1897 airship reports, Bigfoot reports, giant snake reports, uh, UFOs. We were looking at all of those in terms of was there uh, one organizing unified theory that we could uh, explain everything with? And we, we came up with this real, you know, useful idea of looking at union psychology and the collective unconscious, a, a planetary collective unconscious. We were, you know, we were friends of Jacques Vallée and John Keel, and we were all tossing around these ideas. And Jerry and I have both rejected those, uh, but it was a way to look at high strangeness during the 70s. A lot of people were writing about high strangeness. Uh, and, you know, somebody in Italy uh, would talk about uh, alien that had blue blood. And in South America, they were talking about little hairy mean creatures. In other words, what we were seeing was a real cultural reflection of the phenomena through the lens of the eyewitnesses. And you can do that all you want. You can do that until you're blue in the face. And it's not, doesn't, it doesn't project us to any further solutions. And I finally uh, talked to Ivan Sanderson and he said, you know, there's always going to be hairy creatures in the suburbs. But never explain one unknown with another unknown. And that really hit hard. And I've become a very flesh and blood, biological, zoological cryptozoologist because I found it extremely frustrating to talk about zoo forms. That's that's perfect. That's a that's a good way to uh, I think conclude our conversation as well. Just with that little bit of never explain an unknown with another unknown. And um, Lauren, if people want to get Mothman Evil Incarnate, and I know you guys are going to want to buy it, so I want you to go buy it. In fact, I'm using my hypnotic powers on you right now through <laughs> your earphones. Go buy Mothman Evil Incarnate because we're number one. We're supporting the kind of research we want. Um, which is detailed, uh, cares about that you know cares about the little stuff because if we don't care about the little details, then the people from the skeptical inquirer are going to eat us alive. So we, <laughs> you know, we care about this kind of research. So go pick a copy of Mothman, Evil Incarnate, and where can they do that, Lauren? Well, it's, it's all it's online now, uh, all online. 
bookstores have it and even some uh, brick-and-mortar ones. At the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, we have a little gift store there, and if they buy the book there, then it actually very directly supports our nonprofit. So we do have a gift store associated with our website, and if people buy it through the uh, museum, then they get an inscribed uh, autographed copy from me, and so that helps us even more. Can they buy it on the on the web from your museum? Yes, exactly. Okay. We have if they go to in uh, cryptozoologymuseum.com, then they'll see at the top it says gift store. You go to gift store, there's a listing for the Mothman book. Uh, they then will get it inscribed by me, and we're actually signing the first 100 copies will be numbered, and so those will be even rarer uh, because I'm getting a shipment of 100 tomorrow. And those are all going out this week. And that link is going to be on our show notes. So you can check out othersidepodcast.com and you're going to have that link to get the, uh, the book right from the Cryptozoology Museum. Anyway, Allison, thank you for joining us and setting up the interview. Yes. Uh, yeah, th- thank you very much. And I'd like to share that uh, if uh, you'd like to see all the videos of all the uh, current uh, Bossman uh, Chicagoland sightings, uh, you can go to uh, youtube.com slash mothman. And uh, that link is going to be in our show notes too. Anyway, this is really fun. Lauren, we're going to have to have you on again. So whenever you have a book, come to us and we're going to, we'll help you talk about it. Well, thank you for your support and it really was nice talking to you guys today. It was a great time. Thank you very much and uh, check it out, othersidepodcast.com for the links to get that stuff and see those videos. Wow, well, there you have it. Yeah, the Mothman, I mean, Evil Incarnate. Oh, my gosh. And I really cannot wait to read that book. Yeah, it looks sweet. December 15th is when it comes out. And so yeah. I'm pick up a copy. It's on my Christmas list. Hint, hint. Well, maybe if you're good this year and not naughty <laughs> like usual, Santa will bring it. Oh, of of all right. I'll be extra good the next couple of weeks. Yes, I think you should be. Now, um, you said there's a video of you watching the Mothman Prophecies? Yeah, actually, our friend Scott Marcus mm-hmm. has a, uh, it does a series of videos where he watches movies and then c- discusses how it varies from the actual like historical or the process of ghost hunting. So okay. kind of comparing Hollywood paranormal to real life paranormal. Sure. And so after visiting Point Pleasant, we did a little recap on that one, on the Mothman we watched the video with Richard Gere. Yeah, all right. That's my man, Richard Gere. <laughs> and, uh, and then we discussed it after having just visited Point Pleasant. So if anybody wants to check that out, we will put a link in our show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 174. That's also where you're going to find uh, the lyrics and a download link for this week's song. Ooh. Now, we, we were talking before how uh, the Mothman isn't just about winged humanoids. Now, we've already, we've already done a song about winged humanoids with the Sweet Home Chicago Mothman. <laughs> yes, that was fun. So now <laughs> uh, we decided to do a song uh, that's about one of the characters that shows up in John Keel's book, uh, The Mothman Prophecies. And that is the strange case of Indrid Cold. Mm, such a spooky name, too. Is the guy's name. Indrid Cold uh, shows up in, in several different points and makes phone calls. And there's reports of this strange guy who's always got a smile on his face. And in the book, uh, they call him the Grinning Man. 
So we thought that Indra deserved his own song. So here's Sunspot with The Grinning Man. A form made of chaos It can smell the blood on you This planet haunted by us And the owners want their doom Look about, you'll see the grinning man when the lights go out. Then the telephone rings, there's no one at the end. You'll see the grinning man when the lights go dead. It knows your wobbliest spots, sees inside your darkest of hearts. This planet haunted by us, the owners want their. Black wings flutter and red eyes look about You'll see the grinning man when the lights go out Then the telephone rings, there's no one at the end You'll see the grinning man when the lights go dead When the black wings flutter and red eyes look about You'll see the grinning man when the lights go out Then the telephone rings, there's no one at the end for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. And we'll keep you grinning if you join our Patreon community. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we will. And I can't wait. We're going to have another hangout coming up here at the end of the year. We can all talk about our favorite parts of 2017 and what we're looking forward to in 2018, but not yet. Not just yet. No, we still got a couple weeks left of 2017. So you still have a chance to join our Patreon community and join us for the Hangouts and a whole bunch of new surprises that we're going to have ready for everybody in 2018. Yay! You can do that by checking out othersidepodcast.com slash donate because we love our Patreons, especially Dr. Ned. He's the Patreon whose buddy had the story about the 
Otis Redding concert yeah. at the beginning of the show. Right. And so uh, Dr. Ned is pledges at the level where he gets a shout out in every single episode. So cheers to you, Dr. Ned. Thank you, Ned. Cheers. And cheers to all our awesome Patreons who keep See You on the Other Side looking for weird stuff <laughs> every single week. Thanks for listening. It's the Point Pleasant Squeaker instead of the Freiburg Shrieker.